0: we are in week three of our series uh, called this or that what we've been talking about is just the importance of Scripture like what does Scripture even mean like we, we talk about the Bible and we quote the Bible we'll use verses every once in a while and there was probably a point in your life like there was in my life where someone just handed you this book and said here is truth read it front to back live your life by it you'll be good to go and over the first week that we talked about this series, we, we discussed, is the Bible a book that is trustworthy? Can this be trusted? Is this something that you really could live your life by, that will guide you in the right way? Are these really the words of God that were written, that was inspired by men? And we talked about that, and we, we explained just the, the mathematical equation of of. God being able to fulfill just one of the prophecies or just eight of the prophecies from the Old Testament to the New Testament that Jesus accomplished. And so we we looked and found that Scripture is trustworthy. It is something that we can build our lives around and on and let it be a guiding light. Last week, you talked a little bit about how Scripture was God-breathed. This is not just a, a book that man decided to write down like a novel that is somewhere out there on the bookshelves of Barnes & Noble. Uh, rest in peace, because they're seen to be going away. But it's God-breathed. It was these men under the just the power of the Holy Spirit of, of writing down, capturing, in different decades, different times, different places, writing the things of God. That they were being inspired to write, and then all these things come together to become a, to, to become one book. And everything, even being written centuries apart, miles apart, different cultures, the book is unified in its purpose of pointing people to the story of God and the story of redemption. Today, I want to take a little bit of a different uh, turn here as we we look at the scripture, like we're going to look at why we follow some laws in the Bible but other laws we don't follow y'all have ever noticed that there's some things in the Old Testament we read and we do those things like we you know we're not going out murdering people every day but maybe maybe you have a dog that's a mixed breed oh y'all didn't know that was in there that's in there there's some weird stuff in there Uh, for example why don't we follow the law about not mixing fabrics cotton wool Anybody? I mean, all of us are guilty right now, right? Let us repent. Or uh, maybe abstaining from shellfish. Whoa, that's a little bit of a penalty here in the low country. We can't have shrimp anymore. No crab, (laughs) no lobster. Just kidding. Lobster's too high class. So we eat crawfish, right? But yet the Bible gives us these laws of mixing fabrics and eating certain things. But we we don't follow those. Yet, we adhere to any biblical understanding when it comes to sexuality or justice or avoiding idolatry or the Ten Commandments. We follow those things. So why is it, as followers of Jesus, that there are certain things that we live out and, and understand to be true, and these are what's required of us and asked of us from the Scriptures, but other things we throw off to the wayside? I think that's a... A legitimate question how do followers of Jesus respond to the Old Testament law because can we just be honest when you first became a Christian and you got to the Old Testament how many of you just openly admit that book got kind of weird really quick how many of you have just just dove into the book of Leviticus Y'all know that when you do your Bible reading in a year, y'all get right the Leviticus and you go, I think God's gonna be okay if I just skip this book because of the weird stuff that's in it. And many of you skip it. But there's, there has to be a response to the Old Testament because a lot of people would say, well, the Old Testament laws don't matter anymore. Well, that's not true. I mean, it's the Bible, right? So God didn't include all these things in the Old Testament just to say, well, it's here for your reading enjoyment, but it really doesn't matter anymore. And that's not at all what he said. You know, we know about the Ten Commandments. We can quote them. We, we have said them. We have taught them. We have told our kids these things. But did you know that there are some, somewhere upwards of 613 laws or commands in the Old Testament? Do we have to obey all 613? Because we've just said that we've already broken some because we've eaten shellfish. We've worn fabrics. We've had mixed breed of dogs. I mean, when you have mildew... Some of you spray it with mildew cleaner. Hopefully, all of us do. But that's not what the Bible says to do with it. Just clean it, and you set it out, and let it purify for seven days, and then bring it back into the fold. You learn all kinds of new stuff at the church. <laughs> but look at this verse, for instance, Leviticus chapter eleven. And the pig, because it's parts the hoof and it's cloven-footed, uh, but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you beef okay barbecue no can't touch it not only can you not eat it you can't touch the carcass of it because it's unclean and I know some of you are sitting here in fear right now going wait a second can I have bacon can I can I eat bacon?" yes you can have bacon we're gonna get to that why you can't in just a minute but you're gonna have bacon although I'm probably gonna lose some of you turkey bacon is really delicious that's what my doctor said at my last visit when he said my cholesterol was too high. That's what he told me. It was my, I needed turkey bacon in my diet. God forgive him. So, But why do Christians seem to keep some of the commands in the Bible and not others? Because from an outsider, it can seem a little hypocritical that you would put these rules and these laws in place, but you conveniently push these others to the side and they don't matter anymore. And that's what it can look to the outsider. When when we're trying to figure out what commands in Scripture do we live and what commands no longer uh, need to be followed by us because of Jesus, how do we go about doing that? And I think there's a danger in trying to determine these commands because you're going to fall in one or two different extremes. Extreme number one is what we call Marcion. He was a person. I'm going to talk about him in just a second. But Marcion, kind of an extreme, is like chopping of Scripture on one hand, like cutting out bits and pieces that you used to go, oh, I like this, so I'm going to apply this. This piece, not so much. I'm going to throw it away. And we'll, we'll choose bits and pieces of the laws and the Scriptures that we want to follow, and that would be an error of Marcion. Marcion lived in the second century, and his heart of his whole theology, he said God is a, he's a dualistic God. In other words, what he said was there was a God for the Old Testament, and there was a God for the New Testament, but they weren't the same gods. And he, he would go on to say the reason that is, is because God in the Old Testament seems very wrathful and would bring punishment on the people. But this God in the New Testament doesn't do that. He seems to be a loving God. So clearly, there must be two gods. And I would say clearly, Jesus entered the picture to fix our broken hearts and our sin life. That's why it was much different. Because people in the Old Testament were having these laws and they couldn't keep up. Can you imagine trying to live up to uh, 613 laws? We have a hard enough time driving the speed limit, right? And so here we are, with this Marcion kind of extreme that we can get just to say well I'm gonna pick and choose what I want to do Marcion went so crazy that he wrote his own scripture he cut out what he wanted and once he got his book written he planted congregations all over the Mediterranean area of pick and choose what you want kind of theology even more recent we all know about Thomas Jefferson have you ever heard of the Jefferson Bible Thomas Jefferson made his own Bible. He believed that there was no, God didn't, Jesus didn't do all these miracles, so he he went through Scripture and cut out all the miracles of Jesus. It says that when he got to the book of John, his razor went dull because he was cutting so many things out. In the Jefferson Bible, which you can see today in Washington, D.C., took out the resurrection of Jesus. But we say he's a Christian. Thomas Jefferson was not. all he was a deist because we get to these points that we have this theology of this dualistic notion of God where well let me just pick and choose what I want to read in Scripture and apply and then throw everything else out that's that's one extreme here's the other extreme that we may be more comfortable with or know more about hopefully we're not comfortable with it but we know more about it And the other hand we fall into what we would call an unbiblical legalism legalism y'all heard that word before you probably have referred to people at that word, and hopefully nobody's referred to you in that word. But legalism is not simply keeping laws, but is a self-righteous attitude, right? The legalist thinks that he's righteous, so anyone who doesn't conform to the way that I do life is wrong. You gotta follow my example, because I know what's right. This is a dangerous place to be in legalism, especially with pastors. Pastors that would say, oh, follow me because I'm right. I know what I'm talking about. That's legalism. If you don't conform to what I say, then you're wrong. And and so legalism usually plays out with interpretations of Scripture. Like interpretations of Scripture. I think Scripture says it, not actual Scripture. See, the problem that we have in the local church is we spend more time giving our opinions than we do giving Scripture. And I pray to God my opinion has no weight compared to what I read from the Bible. Because what, what we do here is grounded in this book. That's why we're taking time to really talk about what scripture is and understand these laws and these rules and this, these, these Old Testament things that seem sometimes to make no sense. I would define legalism in this way in its most basic definition. I would say that legalism believes that we can earn or keep God's favor by what we do and we we just spent four weeks going through the book of Galatians was that not the theme of Galatians it was a form of legalism if we do these things God will love me more if I pray more read the scripture more show up the church consistently I give more just what just add on if I do these things God's gonna love me more that's that's legalism self-righteous because we bind to the fact that we think that we have some kind of power in our own salvation that we save ourselves but yet it is truly God remember he said that you were dead and he brought you to life dead people don't do anything you can't regenerate salvation when you're dead the Holy Spirit has to do that when he breathes life into you legalism believes that we can earn or keep God's love, we can keep God's forgiveness, we can earn God's forgiveness, we can earn salvation and favor by what we do and what we don't do. And, and that's a term that gets thrown around a lot, that term favor. You guys heard that word? I, Alice and I joke about it all the time. Like, Oh look, got a parking space up close. Must be God's favor. God's not giving me favor based on what, I, what I'm doing. He's not blessing me because I'm living the right life. See, when you walk in the gospel you receive the blessings of what comes off of the gospel it's based off of what God not what I do if that's the case I'm not getting a whole lot I I live a sinful life too right not intentionally but we sin and sometimes I find myself being a little legalistic a little self-righteous I wouldn't have done it that way (laughs) probably because the way I would have done it was wrong but legalism believes that we, we have this power to keep and earn and do, do, do. That will burn you out because you realize you don't have the power to do that. You don't have the capacity to do that. Our righteousness, righteousness before God is based upon, not upon our, our works, but it's based upon our trust in Jesus and the grace that Jesus has given us. Look what Paul says. In Galatians we've read this verse before I want to bring it back up he says I do not nullify the grace of God I don't throw the grace of God off here's what I'm saying about the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law then Christ died for no purpose what he's saying is the law has no no saving power whatsoever if, if we didn't talk about grace and we only talked about the law he's saying Jesus died for no reason at all because if the law could save you if following these rules because here's what the law was it was the Old Testament following all the laws of the Old Testament and those, the words of the prophets if we follow those things then we're good but what he was saying was there's no way possible that you could follow all 600 there's 613 laws see the law was put into place to show our depravity to show that we were not a holy people that we had drifted so far away from God grace came in to show us to put the final stamp that you couldn't do this but I could through the death and the burial and the resurrection of my son Jesus and that's that's what it is that's that's what Paul is saying here that if righteousness could save you there's no need for Jesus to come why would a a God allow his son to experience what he experienced on a cross if it were for nothing he goes back in Galatians 2 if you look at verse 16 Paul says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. They're justified through their faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. He says, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. What's Paul saying? You can't find salvation through legalism. You only find salvation through grace and grace alone. And this is what Paul has echoed all through the books of Galatians. For us to maintain that we can merit God's favor outside of the work of Jesus is to say that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was either not necessary or it wasn't even sufficient enough for us. Every time we try to earn our way into God, that's what we're telling God. I don't believe that your sacrifice on the cross was enough to get me here. Jesus is enough. We don't have to perform for him. Like, isn't it funny that the God who knows everything we try to play fake with when we come to our prayers sometimes with him? And he already knows our heart, just say it. Because prayer, I think, is more about us than it is about God. It's us searching the inner places of our heart and confessing to him. Praying our true desires. You ever notice that Jesus spends a lot of time saying, pray for your enemies? Did you ever notice how many times he said, pray for your mom? He told John to take care of his mom, but I, I never heard him say specifically to pray for your mom because praying for your mom is pretty easy, isn't it? Praying for your enemies is a different ballgame. And sometimes I pray for our enemies. It's like, God, if you'll just strike lightning down, let them get hit by a car, whatever. But no, When you read, pray for your enemies, Jesus said, pray for them, pray the things that you want in your life, pray in their life. It's a much harder prayer than that. Because what God wants us to understand is that this legalism is so dangerous because we begin putting expectations on other people. Well, if they've done this and wronged me, then I want this for their life. And it puts us in the the seat of thinking that we're God. You know on the nation's biggest shopping day many of you crazies like to go black friday shopping you get up at wee early hours of the morning to go do that on this last one that we we just had there's this tragic occurrence that took place in a walmart in a long island in new york shortly before these doors open these shoppers all rushed in like i don't know how you do it i couldn't have people all up on me like that but whatever these doors open shoppers push through the doors they begin to trample the workers that were in their way just simply trying to do their job one of the Walmart employees was crushed in what we would call a selfish stampede because people just trying to get in to get their latest deal that's the way that legalism functions it is the environment of competition it is the, the Walmart stampede occurred because there were a limited number, you ready for this, Blu-ray players. I don't, I don't have, a, I still own DVD. Is Blu-ray that big of a deal now? I'm not sure. I still work on the DVDs. Mainly because D, uh, Blu-rays are super expensive <laughs> on the DVD, it's cheaper. Let's go with that. But he says that... that what happens with legalism is we act like there's only a a limited number of spots available for God and we got to work our way and get our way in there we got to be a part of the team nobody else is going to be on so we have this selfish ambition we have to cut other people down we bite each other we devour one another in pursuit of our prize and we falsely think that the competition is between us and other people so we set up rules and we begin to tear people down because they're not following to the mandates and the commandments that we think they need to live up to. And we begin judging and defrauding one another. And then what happens in this is we fail to see that the issue is not between us and others, but the issue is actually between us and God, that we have sinned, that we have sinned. You know, it's not our sin that keeps us from God. It's not being with God that keeps us sinning. We're not, we don't have the proximity to God. Well, my life's out of control, I'm sinning. It's because we're trying to follow rules. We've got to get proximity back to God because when we're with Him in His presence, He exposes everything in our hearts. Does He not? Legalism is a dangerous system. It's a system. In legalism, in it, the sheep are hurt. The gospel is vile and Christ is marginalized, and we become exalted. That's legalism. It eats the church alive. And you know what keeps you from legalism is getting into a posture of grace. Give grace as much as you have received it from God. Give it out as much as you can. If Jesus had thought that the kingdom could be built through law, legalism, and fundamentalism, then guess what? He would have worked with the Pharisees rather than choosing the twelve disciples. Because the system was already set up for that. But Jesus didn't come to play with the system. he came to disrupt the system to put in the right thing that needed to work, and that was grace. So when we get back to these laws, you can go one or two ways. We pick and choose what we want, or we fall into a legalistic mindset. And we say, this is the way it is. If you don't do it, if you don't wear the... I mean, this is how crazy legalism, because we add rules on top of rules. Well, if you're going to come to church, here's the dress code: cra- You've got to have a three-piece suit. You've got to have nice shoes. you got you got to blah, 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 and do all these things if you just want to go to church. And we try to figure out why people don't want to go to church. Because we have a legalistic mindset. So we can't fall in to this place of legalism and cutting and choosing with the Marcion mentality so what do we do let's look at what the law was very quickly because a vital question that we have to seek to answer biblically is this is how does the old testament law apply to christians today how do we know which commands in the bible are still god's to call because if we can't pick and choose and we can't, and, and not every one of them we need to be doing, where's the where's the middle line? Because there's got to be a middle line in here, right? And that's what we're going to find. There are de- uh, several different perspectives on how Christians need to respond to these 613 laws. So first, got to understand the Old Testament. So we need to break down and, and view these things into the categories. J.D. Greer, who's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, has done a great job of breaking this down. So I'm just going to give you, in my research, what he said um, right here. Three distinct types of laws that you're going to find in the in the Old Testament. They're, number one, there's ceremonial laws. Ceremonial laws. There are civil laws. And there are moral laws. Okay. So when we hear the word law into the Old Testament, it's going to fall into one of these three categories. Either ceremonial, it's going to be civil, it's going to be moral. So when Jesus is talking and Paul is writing and they're all talking about the law, these are the three things they're talking about now we got to decipher out where do we fall in the middle what are these things wh- which one of these things do we do so the 16th century reformer John Calvin saw that the New Testament seemed to treat the Old Testament laws in these three ways even he noticed it. And, and what he what he found was there, there were the silver laws which governed the nation of Israel it encompassed not only behaviors but also punishments for crimes same as you and I, we get caught speeding, we get a ticket, we try to cry our way out of it, we still get a ticket, we go to court, pay it, be done, right? Y'all haven't tried to cry your way out of a ticket? Y'all missing out, that's the fun part. At least it's entertaining to the police officers. Then we have ceremonial laws about what's clean, what's not clean. This is what you're going to see in Leviticus a lot. Well, this was unclean, now you got to do this to get it clean. Right? There are ceremonial washings. Did you know when the Jewish people would go to synagogue, the first things they had to do was they had to dip into the ceremonial cleansing pools of water and cleanse themselves, and then had to walk to the temple. And you know what would happen? If, if you were unclean, and I'm walking to the temple, and we brush shoulders, i got to go right back down to water, and I've got to go rewash. They had even made a way for people to come down and back up so that you wouldn't brush shoulders with somebody else because you couldn't walk into the synagogue unclean could you imagine that in our culture today you can't come in yet you got to go wash in the pool then you can come back not just like scrub down there were prayers There were everything that had to happen in ceremonial cleansings so there's these ceremonial laws I mean again if you if you ate shellfish in the Old Testament there was a penalty for that you broke a ceremonial law wasn't civil, it was ceremonial. Then you have the moral laws, and that's the moral laws which declared what God deemed right and wrong. It, it, the Ten Commandments, the moral law. So we have, we have these three things. So for the Old Testament Israel, all three types of laws blended together. Right? So all as, as the nation of God, the nation of Israel, all three of these laws all blended as one. There was no separation of church and state. So if you broke a silver law, you stole the guy's donkey. If you did that, you may have broken. You broke a moral code, and you broke some kind of ceremonial piece. It was a really big deal when they broke broke the law. And these laws would go hand in hand with Israel throughout its whole time until Jesus would come. That's not the case for the church today. So we don't view the law the same way that they do because we, we have the moral law of what God has given us and what we need to do. And we have civil law because Paul says, even in Romans, that you're to obey the governing authorities that are with you. The ceremonial pieces have kind of been pushed away. We're not in these ceremonial cleansing baths anymore. We're, you know, One of the ceremonial pieces that when you would go worship in Israel, and even as you waited in line to get that ceremonial bath and you were on your way up into the city and up, you were inside the walls of Jerusalem and it hit you all of a sudden that, oh, i got to go to the bathroom. Well, you had to quickly leave the city because using the bathroom in the city would defile it. Let me put it, if you have to use the bathroom this morning, you can't go down the hallway and use the bathrooms here because you'll defile the building. You're going to need to go somewhere else. That, that's where they were on the law. That's how extreme it got. And so, when we begin to tear this down and look and understand this, it helps us explain that what often seems to be contradictory about the New Testament view of the law. On one hand, Jesus said the law was perfect, that heaven and earth would pass away before the law would fail. He says that in Matthew chapter 5. On the other hand, the Apostle Paul points out that those who are born again are actually released from the law. And as Jesus himself put it, he came to fulfill the law. Look what he says in Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. So I didn't come to like cut it away and get rid of it. Because there are some people going, please just take this away. Right? Bacon, please. All these pigs, please. And they come. And Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with it. I came to fulfill it. Because I'm going to do something that you can't do. I can fulfill all 613 of those things without a problem. You can't. I'm going to be the one that's going to fulfill this so that you never have to worry about it again. So you can use bathrooms in your church and not defile the place. So that you can have church-wide Fist Sunday potlucks and have barbecue. We're going to do these things. That sounded amazing, didn't it? Because we're going to have one in March. Somebody want to do the barbecue? Amen. Thank you for volunteering. (laughs) So what does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the law? It, It means that every law pointed to him and he completed everything that pointed to him thinking of Jesus as a fulfillment of the law helps us see why we keep some of the Old Testament commandments and we ignore other ones when Jesus came and fulfilled the law virtually everything changed in that moment and I'm going to give you five things you may not be able to write them fast enough so if you want to take pictures of the screen knock yourself out number one The blood sacrifices ceased because Christ fulfilled all that were pointing to him. No more sacrificing animals. That's really good news for your HOA. (laughs) Because there would be a bloodbath in some of our neighborhoods of having to sacrifice these animals. That went away tells us in in Hebrews chapter 9 it it says that he entered once and for all into all the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and of calves but by the means of his own blood he didn't go into the temple based off the sacrifice of some animal he went into the temple based off his own blood he says thus securing our eternal redemption he also the second thing the priesthood that stood between the worshiper and God ceased guess what you don't need to come to me to get forgiveness for your sins you can go directly to God you don't have a veil that was separating you from getting into the presence of God you now have direct 24 7 access no matter where you are to God he says that in John chapter 4 He says Jesus said woman believe me excuse me let me back up Hebrews chapter 7 the former priest were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But God, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Number three, the physical temple ceased to be a geographic center of worship. Guess what? We can have churches all over the place. We don't have to have one central place of church anymore. Everybody went to Jerusalem to worship in the synagogue. We don't have to do that anymore. We can come here right down the street. And we can worship God in our community, together. It's not, see, they were missing it in the Old Testament. God was never a God that wanted to be put into one place. They built a temple around him. He finally said, okay, fine. But God's a mobile God. He's always on the move. And now, Jesus dies, the church is born, and there's no geographical certain location that we have to be anymore. We can have church Everywhere, anywhere, whenever. Fourth thing, the food laws that set Israel apart from the nations have been fulfilled and ended in Jesus. Mark chapter 7 says that Jesus said to them, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? In other words, that bacon's not defiling you. It's giving you high cholesterol. Trust me, but it's not defiling you and making in separating your relationship from God. That shrimp that you're peeling right now, that's not separating you from God anymore. You can do that. Of course, you need to do that in moderation. Here's the fifth thing, and this is probably the best one for us. The establishment of civil law on the basis of an ethnically rooted people who are ruled directly by God has ceased. In other words, the people of God are no longer a unified political body or or an ethnic group or a nation state, but are exiles and we're sojourners along all ethnic groups and all states. In other words, the, the Israelites were the children of God. Jesus comes and word comes to the Gentile of salvation that Jesus has come to die for everybody. We all now have relationship with Jesus. We are all God's children. That was really good news for us. Romans chapter 6 says for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under say this word with me we're under Grace. what that's the good news that is the good news how many of you have stopped just to think Jesus for freeing us from the law freeing us from having to do all these things we see all these rules and regulations, what to wear, how to plant crops, what portion of the sacrifice can I eat, what can I eat. He wants to be bound by all that stuff. Because of Jesus, we can ignore all those things. Doesn't The, the only problem is Jesus didn't come to free us from the law. You see, he, he came to free us from sin. He didn't need to free us from the law. We were never enslaved to the law. We were enslaved to sin and that's what he came to free us from because sin enslaves our our liberty in Jesus is liberty from sin not liberty to ignore the holiness of God so the, the law cannot change our sinful nature the law and the traditions in the Old Testament gave people the habits of holiness to pursue God and you might say that they knew and loved God yet they didn't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, so they lacked the power to cease from sin. They they had the power; they didn't have the Holy Spirit bringing this conviction. Their conviction was they had to do these sacrifices because they knew they were wrong. And we have the Holy Spirit. We are disciples of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the New Testament tells us how we are now to live our lives. And Jesus says we are to live our lives based off the law of Christ in Galatians chapter 6. While the Bible nowhere specifically defines what precisely the law of Christ is, most followers of Jesus would tie it to the two greatest commandments that Jesus taught us when he asked what the greatest commandment is. Look at this in Mark chapter 12. We're fixing to wrap it up right here. Jesus answered, the most important is, see, they were trying to trick him, by the way. The the law the Pharisees, only thing they needed him to do was say one thing, that would jeopardize all of the law. To get him to be murdered, to get rid of him once and for all, and they tactic after tactic they would come at him. They were harsh, they were rude, but their tone changed right here because they decided to take it from a different perspective to try to trap Jesus. And they said, "Hey, what's the greatest commandment?" And what they were saying was, out of all ten of these, we're supposed to live by the law. Which one of these is the greatest? Because by saying that any one of them was the greatest would would elevate it above the rest. And it would have him saying that this is the most important, don't worry about the other things. And so here's Jesus' response. Well, the most important is, and they lean forward going, this is our moment, he's gone. He's getting the death penalty right after this because remember all three laws work together in this time period. He says, hear, O Israel, and this is what they call the Shema in, in Jewish custom. They pray this prayer every day. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And they're going, yep, we agree with that. We agree. He says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And they're like, okay. And he says, this, here's the second one now. There's two. You ask for one, I'm going to give you two. He said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You notice they didn't grab rocks and throw them at Jesus right away. Did you notice that? Because he just just played them. He just outsmarted them. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was summarizing the Ten Commandments in these two commandments. The Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 deal with our relationship with God and then our relationship with other people. Love the Lord. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. All those commandments were about our relationship to God. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. He said, let me tell you about the second part of those commandments because those are about our relationships with each other. Don't covet, don't murder, don't do those things. And they, they couldn't say anything. Jesus said it all comes down to this, that we love God and we love other people. Without a right relationship with God, because he says love God and then love others. He didn't say love other people and then love God. Because sometimes just dealing with some of the people that we have to deal with might make us question God sometimes. But without a right relationship with God, our relationships with others will not ever be right. Ever. The cause of the world's problems is that man needs to be reconciled to God. That we need to draw back to God. That the slate needs to be wiped clean. That grace needs to abound. I love what Paul says, that it's just like he gives grace upon grace upon grace with us. And we'll never love our neighbor as ourselves if we don't learn how to love God with our whole self. Because God is love. And to love my neighbor comes from an abundance of how God loves me flowing into their lives through God. I'm just the channel to get it out. So all all of man's best efforts towards world peace will always fail as long as men are living in a rebellion against God as long as we don't have a relationship with God. The Bible says that we, you and I, before we knew Jesus, we were once enemies of God. So do we still keep the Ten Commandments? Absolutely. Because Jesus did. And he did it through loving God and loving people. And as followers of Jesus, we are to be known for our love for others, including our enemies. So this afternoon... Get you some barbecue. Go go have shrimp. But in the process, thank God and love God. How about love the waitress and the waiters that come to your table? Make eye contact. Introduce yourself. Find their name. Pray for them when you say the blessing. Don't be weird. Let them know they're loved and cared for. That's what what God's concerned with. Yeah, the old song says, what the world needs now is love. And they were partially right. What the world really needs now is God's love. And before people encounter God, they're going to encounter you. And they're going to encounter me. And the more time that I spend with Jesus, the easier it's going to be to love people the way that he loves me. Because as I'm trying to love somebody else the way that God loves me, guess what it's doing to me? I'm having to process how God really loves me. I'm having to process before I can ever talk to you about grace, I have to understand what grace has done in my life, what God is doing in my life through grace. Because I can't tell you if I've never been there. You can't tell people if you've never been there. What if your time was God today that you spent with him was more than just what you got out of it? What if God gave you a word for somebody else today? This is what it means to be a go and tell church and not a come and see. So I want to pray for you as, as, we, as we get ready to, to sing and, and close. But Here's my prayer. Is that if you don't know Jesus and have a relationship with him, you are living in the law. You're living under law and not under grace. And today he wants to give you his grace. He wants to give you salvation. He wants to breathe life into your dead body and give you brand new spiritual life, everlasting life. And if that's you, I just want you to pray with me. I'm not going to have you raise your hand and I'm not going to have you do any weird things. The only thing I want to ask you is that you would just go over to the new here table that's located right over here at the back of this auditorium and just speak with someone there. Because the best thing for you to do when you make a decision on Jesus, the Spirit's moving in your life, is to get involved in a small group. And we have together groups. It's the most important place for you because that's an incubator for your spiritual growth, far more than what being in this room is right now. Can I just tell you that I think what I do right here is important when I preach, but I think what our together group people do far outweighs the influence that happens right here because of what they do. So I want to pray for you. And if you don't know who Jesus is, it's not a magical prayer that saves you, but it is your heart geared towards him, recognizing the Holy Spirit's moving in your life. Would you pray with me? Lord, I've sinned and I'm far from you. God, I just ask that you would forgive me. God, I acknowledge that you died on a cross. And that you rose again so that I could have grace and have a relationship with God. Lord, help me and guide me and give me the courage to take my next step of getting into a group with people who can help me grow and disciple me. Thank you for saving me. So Jesus, I just pray today that those that have prayed that prayer, that the Spirit's moving, I just pray that they'll continue to listen to that, listen to His voice, and make a move today to get connected to the life and the body of discipleship here at Together Church. Thank you for freeing us from the law. Thank you for giving us grace. And God, I just pray that you just expose things in our hearts where we, we want to naturally shift back to the law. Lord, I love what Paul said when he said... <laughs> That what the law couldn't do, God did. You're sufficient. All sufficient. So Jesus, in these moments, just work our hearts. Just help us to process, to continue learning and growing in this. And We thank you for what you're going to do. We pray these things in your name.